morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 through 16. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The word of the Lord. The TV show Stranger Things is all about four middle school boys and a girl with telekinetic powers named Eleven who join together in a party to fight evil forces from a dark shadow world called the Upside Down. And in the second season, a new girl shows up named Max. And two of the boys, Dustin and Lucas, are immediately smitten with her. And they invite Max to join their party, but Max pretends like she's not interested. Why would I want to have anything to do with your stupid party? She acts like she doesn't care, but she really does care. But one of the other boys named Mike is suspicious about Max. He's still grieving the loss of Eleven, who disappeared at the end of the first season. And he thinks Max is trying to take her place. So he's really hostile to her until finally Max confronts Mike and she says, hey, why don't you want me to be a part of your party? And Mike says, because we don't need anybody else in the party. I'm our paladin. Will is our cleric, Dustin's our bard, Lucas is our ranger, and Eleven is our mage. And don't ask me what those things mean, because I did not play Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s. But the point is, everybody in the party has their own special role. So Max picks up on this, and she jumps on her skateboard and says, well, I could be your Zoomer. See? Zoom. Ta-da! Max acts like she doesn't care. But in reality, she longs to belong. So do we. We all long to belong. We all long to know, am I seen? Am I accepted? Am I valued? Am I welcomed? 
That is a powerful human experience. It also creates quite a tension in us, because on the one hand, we all want to belong to something bigger than ourselves, but on the other hand, you want to feel like you, little old you, with your name, your story, your dreams, your hopes, like all of that matters. And that creates a powerful tension in our lives. We all feel like we want to belong to something bigger than ourselves, and yet without losing ourselves. We long to belong to something bigger than ourselves, yet without losing ourselves. Now, pretty much every approach to life in the world will help you to do one or the other of those things, but rarely both. So, for instance, in Eastern traditions like Buddhism, um, you can become a part of something bigger than yourself, but it means losing your sense of self. You're like a drop of water falling into the ocean. On the other hand, um, other approaches to like life, like our modern Western culture, are so focused on you as an individual that there's very little connection to anything bigger than yourself. It's all about following your heart or expressing your authentic self. So that even if you are using your gifts in this world, um, oftentimes it's really more about how it's making you feel, how it, making you feel happy and good about yourself. It's, it's about, it's fulfilling me, it's giving me joy. It's not about others, it's about moi. But here's the thing, very, there are very few approaches in life that will help you to do both of these things. We long to belong to something bigger than ourselves, yet without losing ourselves. Pretty much every option out there is not going to help you really do that except the gospel, because that's where spiritual gifts come in. Because when you receive and use spiritual gifts properly, it helps you to become part of something bigger than yourself, far bigger than yourself, but in a way that you actually end up becoming more you than you could be all by yourself. What does that look like? What does that mean? We're in a sermon series in which we're asking the question, why should Christians serve? And this morning, we are looking at one of the most famous passages on that topic in the whole Bible. Um, as we walk through this passage, we're going to see that service is a way of belonging to something bigger than yourself, yet without losing yourself. How? Let's walk through this passage and ask three questions. We want to find out, what are spiritual gifts? Second, what is their purpose? And third, how can we use them properly? Okay? What are spiritual gifts? What is their purpose? And how can we use them properly? All right? First, what are spiritual gifts? Let's start with a definition. I um, learned this definition from Tim Keller, the great pastor and writer in New York City, and I can't improve on this definition. So let me give it to you. Uh, spiritual gifts are abilities given to each Christian to meet needs in such a way that it creates a community of people who are growing into the fullness of the character of Christ. Let me read that again. Spiritual gifts are abilities given to each Christian to meet needs in such a way that it creates a community of people who are growing into the fullness of the character of Christ. Now, that is a lot of words, but let's break this down. First, spiritual gifts are abilities given to each Christian. So, in the Bible, there are different places that give us lists of spiritual gifts. Uh, places like Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. But none of the lists names all of the gifts. 
that will give you a partial list, but there is no list of spiritual gifts in the Bible that names all of the spiritual gifts because there are so many gifts that God gives. But here's one way of thinking about this, and if it helps, great. If not, there are other ways of thinking about this, but here's one way. In the Old Testament, nation of Israel, there were three offices that served the people of God. Those offices were the prophet, the priest, and the king. Now, the prophet speaks God's word. Um, That means that, that this is a gift of communication and teaching and speaking truth. So, some spiritual gifts are prophetic gifts. Those would be things like evangelism or teaching or preaching or other forms of communicating truth. The next office in Israel was the office of the priest. The priest cares for God's people. So that would be things like the priest would carry the burdens of the people up into the presence of God. The priest would also mediate the presence of God back to the people. So there are spiritual gifts that are more priestly gifts, things like bearing burdens and caring for people. That would be things like compassion or prayer or mercy or counseling, things like that. The last office in Israel was the king. Now, the king leads God's people. Um, By the way, the king also fights God's enemies. So, uh, there are some spiritual gifts that are more kingly gifts. Those would be things like administration or leadership or things like fighting for justice and equity. And I'm guessing that as we go through these categories, many of you are actually seeing yourselves in these categories. Some of you are good at communicating and and truth and and speaking truth to people. Others of you are good at caring for people and bearing burdens and, and things like that, while others of you are good at organizing things and creating systems or leading social causes. But every single Christian has spiritual gifts, whether prophetic, priestly, or kingly gifts, or sometimes overlaps of those things. Spiritual gifts are abilities to meet needs. But second, spiritual gifts are abilities that are given to each Christian. So notice at the very beginning, Paul says, to each one of us, grace, that's a gift, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. I mean, every single Christian receives gifts, but notice Paul also says, as Christ apportioned it. That means that no one person receives all of the spiritual gifts. Do you realize what this means? This means that that serving God or doing what we call ministry is not just something that full-time professional ministry people do, like Mary or Jace or me. This is something that every Christian does. Paul says, to each one has received a gift. In other words, every single Christian has a ministry in the church because every single Christian receives spiritual gifts. This really comes out in verses 11 and 12. Paul says that Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Now, those are full-time professional ministry people like Mary or me. But why did Jesus give those people? To equip his people. To equip the saints, literally is what that says, to equip you, the church. That's who Paul is talking about. The reason full-time professional ministry people are in the church is to equip you. To equip you for what? Paul says, for works of service. That word service is literally the word ministry. Every single Christian has a ministry because every single Christian has received spiritual gifts. Now, let me just lean into this for a moment. It's no secret that we live in a consumer culture. 
Our whole world is geared to encourage us to think of ourselves as consumers of goods and services, and it's really easy to bring that paradigm into the church so that when we come to church, it's easy to come with this mindset that says, oh, I'm here to receive spiritual goods and services that I can now take home with me and have a better life. In that mindset, um, you are a ministry consumer. So if, um, if ministry was like a football game, that would be like going to the game and seeing yourself as, as one of the crowd up in the stadium. And there's the team down on the field, they're playing the game, but you're up in the seats, you're enjoying the game, you're a, you're a consumer up there. Paul is telling us the exact opposite of that. If ministry was like a football game, Paul is saying that, that you're the team, you, the church, you're the ones that are supposed to be down on the field. You're the ones that are supposed to be playing the game. And full-time professional ministry people like Mary or me or Jace, we're just the coaching staff. We're, our job is to, is to train you to get in the game and play because you're the team. Friends, understanding the theology of spiritual gifts means understanding that each one of you is a unique individual that God is called to do something that in many ways only you can do. Because you are a unique person. You have a unique story, a unique personality. You have an ethnicity, a gender, a culture, uh, life experiences, all your idiosyncrasies, all of your hurts and pains, even all of your failures. There is no one in the world exactly like you, and God wants to use all of that to serve Him in His church. You realize there is no approach to life or religion or philosophy or anything in this world that puts that kind of emphasis and value on the uniqueness of every individual. So wherever you are in life, and we're all in different places, whether you're a student or in the workforce or in the home or in the community, but wherever you're at, every single Christian receives spiritual gifts, whether prophetic gifts or priestly gifts or kingly gifts, so that no matter where you are, every Christian has a ministry because every Christian receives spiritual gifts. In other words, my job as the pastor is to equip you to do ministry, which is part of what I'm trying to do right now. But my job in the church is not to do all of the teaching or all of the shepherding and the caring or all of the leading. That would be robbing you of your ministry. And that leads to our next point. We've just asked, what are spiritual gifts? But secondly, what is their purpose? As we continue through our definition, what is the purpose of spiritual gifts? Well, remember, Paul says, well, it's for works of service, works of ministry. Okay, but what are the works of service for? Paul continues by saying this, the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, the body of Christ, that's the church. The church is not a building. The church is a community called the body of Christ. In fact, that's a really great metaphor because when you think about a body, you think about the whole thing. Yes, the body is made up of individual parts, but, but it's not about the parts. It's about the body. It's about the whole thing. So that if a toe is missing, the body is incomplete. Or if a thumb is missing, the body is incomplete. It's, it's not the parts are absolutely essential, but it's not about the parts. It's about the body of Christ. Paul is saying that, that the, 
the goal of these works of service is to build up the body. In fact, he goes on to say this, that the goal is until we all become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He's saying that the ultimate purpose of service, of of works of service, the ultimate purpose of spiritual gifts is that we would grow up and become more like Jesus. Now, here's the thing, and it's easy to miss in our translation. When Paul says that the ultimate goal is to become mature, what, literally what he says there is to become a mature man. Now, that might be a little concerning to some of us, but when Paul uses this word man, it is the Greek word for man, it's not a gender thing. Paul is not talking about gender here. There are a lot of other places in the Bible where Paul uses non-gendered language to talk about the church. So just a couple of chapters earlier in Ephesians 2, he calls the church a new humanity, and that word humanity that he uses is a, 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 a generic word for every human being. It's the word anthropos. We're familiar with a word like that. Paul is very capable um, of using non-gendered language. The reason he uses the word man here is because it's, it's making a distinction between a full-grown adult and a baby or a child. The, the simple point that Paul is making is he wants the church to grow up <laughs> and become mature in Christ. That's all that he's saying here. So that while Paul is talking about us as individuals, he's really talking about the whole church to build up the whole body of Christ. In fact, this word man, you know, he doesn't use the word singular, I mean plural, men, in order to talk about every individual Christian. He uses the word man, it's singular, to talk about the whole body of Christ. So once again, yes, this includes us as individuals. In fact, next week, we're going to spend the whole sermon talking about how our service actually transforms us as individuals and makes us more like Jesus. So what Paul is saying here, it does include us as individuals, but it's bigger than us as individuals. It's talking about the whole body of Christ, the whole church, the purpose of of spiritual gifts is that we all grow up as a church. The church itself would grow up into the fullness of Christ. Do you realize how important this is for us today in our world? I mean, more and more people are skeptical and even cynical about Christianity. And more and more people um, who grew up in the church are deconstructing, oftentimes abandoning faith in Jesus and in God. Why? Is it, is it because of Jesus? Normally not. More often, it's because of the church, specifically the immaturity of the church, the babiness of the church. In fact, notice when Paul says, hey, the goal is that we would become mature, that we would grow up in Christ. He says, why? It's because so that we will no longer be infants. He says specifically, he doesn't want the church to be a baby. So when I'm talking to people a lot of times I'll talk to people who don't identify as Christian, and sometimes I'll ask them, hey, what are some of the main reasons that you don't believe in Christianity? And people are very uh, eager oftentimes to talk to me about that. And they'll tell me, well, you know, they'll give me different answers about why they don't believe in Christianity, but by far the most common answers are almost inevitably directed at the immaturity of the church. People will talk about Christians. They'll say that Christians seem so um, hypocritical or obsessed with politics or unconcerned about racial justice, or hateful towards certain minority groups, or just plain immature. The reason that people so often find it so difficult to believe in Jesus is oftentimes it's not the person of Christ. 
It's the body of Christ. But when people do come to faith in Jesus, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all process for how that happens. Everybody's story is different. But one of the most powerful ways that people come to faith in Jesus is when people encounter a whole community of people, the church, that makes Jesus more beautiful to them. Not just one or two Christians, but a whole community. So, for instance, there's a famous author named Sheldon Van Auken. He wrote a book called A Severe Mercy some years ago. It's basically a love story. It's all about how he met his wife, a young woman named Davy, and how they fell in love. But he says early on in the book that um, not only were they caught up in love for each other, they also shared a common love for the mystery of beauty. They shared a common quest for beauty. Now, they were not Christians at the time. In fact, their assumption about Christians is that Christians are stuffy and stupid and people to be avoided at all costs, which they did very successfully. (laughs) But then they moved to Oxford University in England and became uh, friends with a whole group of people who just happened to be Christians. And Sheldon Van Alken says, Um, but we liked them so much we forgave them for it. (laughs) They, the more they got to know this community of Christians, it began to shatter their assumptions about who and what Christians were. And so here's what he says in the book. He says, the sheer quality of the Christians we met at Oxford shattered our stereotype. The astonishing fact sank home Our own contemporaries could be at once highly intelligent, civilized, witty, fun to be with, and Christian. I know that's hard to believe in our modern world, but that was their experience um, back in the middle of the 20th century in in Oxford at England. It began to change their opinions, not necessarily about Christianity, but about Christians. And that opened the door for them to begin to come to faith in Jesus, which they did. And it all began with Christians. Christians who made Jesus possible to them. Christians who made Jesus thinkable to them. Christians who made Jesus beautiful to them. And they realized that their love of beauty was actually pointing them to Jesus. Now listen, if the church as a body has the capacity to darken people's eyes to the beauty of Jesus, and it does and is doing that, then how much more does the church have the capacity to possibly open up people's eyes to the beauty of Jesus? Friends, the only way that can happen is if the whole church, the whole community is growing up into the fullness of Christ. One of the main challenges to that happening is the fact that we live in a culture that says the fullness we seek is something we give to ourselves. We live in a culture that says the fullness you seek, no one or nothing else can give that to you, and that's only something that you can give to yourself. What do we say in our culture? Everyone should be free to live however they want, as long as you don't harm someone else. We live in a culture in which one of the main ideas is this idea of radical self-freedom, self-fulfillment, self-belonging, this idea that you don't belong to anyone or anything else. You belong to yourself. In fact, even someone like Brene Brown, this wonderful sociologist and best-selling author, she has Um, so many incredibly helpful things to teach us all about shame and vulnerability and other things. I quote her 
all the time. So please, you know, you know, this is a church where I never get nasty emails on Monday morning. I'm going to say something about Brene Brown, and you might send me a nasty email tomorrow morning. But please hear me say, I love her and her work. I respect her so much. But even Brene Brown is a huge advocate for this idea of self-belonging. So this is what she says in one of her books. True belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world and find sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. Now, I suspect that when we read something like that, it stirs us. Because this idea, this narrative is woven so deeply into our culture so that if you grew up in the West, and not everybody here did grow up in the West, but if you did, this idea is so intuitive to us. But I just want to ask the question, how is it working out for us? I want to gently suggest that when we use our gifts, our work, our service, our performance in this world as a way of fulfilling ourselves, that the end result is that it's actually making us emptier and emptier. It's making us more anxious, more lonely, addicted, depressed, and suicidal. The reason is because we're beginning from a place of emptiness and then seeking to use our gifts and our work in this world as a way of fulfilling ourselves, as a way of filling ourselves up but radical self-freedom, self-fulfillment, self-belonging can never actually do that. It just ends up making us emptier and emptier in this quest that we're on to use our gifts in this world as a way of fulfilling ourselves is actually making us emptier. And that leads to our last point. We've asked, what are spiritual gifts? They're abilities given to each Christian, emp empowering us for ministry to build up the body of Christ. What is the purpose of spiritual gifts, it's so that the whole body would be built up and become more like Jesus. But lastly, how can we use these spiritual gifts properly? Because using our gifts in order to fill ourselves actually ends up making us emptier and emptier. We end up hurting ourselves. We end up hurting other people. So what would it look like for us to, to do something different, to use spiritual gifts in another way? There's only one way that we can really use spiritual gifts properly. And, and here's what it is. What if instead of beginning from a place of emptiness, what if instead we could begin from an experience of fullness? So that we're not using our gifts in this world as a way of fulfilling ourselves. What if we could begin with an experience of fullness? How would that happen? Well, as often occurs in the Bible, the answer, the key to the whole thing is in the most confusing part of the passage. <laughs> Remember, at the very beginning, Paul says that, um, that grace was given to each one of us, um, that every single one of us is, is given spiritual gifts. But then Paul, uh, you know, a good Bible teacher, he's going to give the proof texts. So what he does is he quotes Psalm 68. He says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to people. He's quoting Psalm 68, and then Paul gives a little commentary on that, and he says this, what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, you and I read this, and we're like, huh? And then we just keep reading. 
But what Paul is saying here is actually the key to the whole thing, and it's actually not that hard to understand. When he's quoting Psalm 68, here's what he's talking about. In the ancient world, if an enemy army attacked a city, the king would ride out of the city and do battle with that army. And then when he defeated his enemies, he would ride back into the city, ascend to his throne, and he would take all the spoils of war, the silver and the gold and all of that, and he would give gifts to the people. Psalm 68 is talking about an incident in the history of Israel in which the great King David did exactly that for the nation of Israel. An enemy army attacked the city, but David rode out. He defeated the enemies. He delivered his people from captivity, and then he rode back into the city. And when he came back into the city, he brought the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a chest that contains the Ten Commandments of God. The Ark represents the presence of God. It represents the fullness of God. And when King David came back into the city, he deposited the Ark back in the temple, and then he sat down on his throne. And all the people would have said, our king has won the victory for us, and now all of the fullness of God is with us. What does Paul say about that? Paul looks at Psalm 68, and he teaches us how to read our Bibles. He says, as amazing as this was, really, this is pointing us to a greater victory with greater gifts, and it's all because of a greater king. The greater victory is because our ultimate enemies are evil and sin and death. It's pointing to greater gifts, more than just the treasure of silver and gold, but the ability to um, bestow spiritual healing and transformation in the lives of others. That's the victory God was aiming at, and those are the gifts that God wants to bestow. But how does he do it? Paul says, Jesus descended. The reason this is the greater victory and these are the greater gifts is because Jesus is the greater king. He's the ultimate king. Jesus is that something bigger that we long to be a part of because Jesus is the fullness that we seek. Paul says that, that Jesus fills the whole universe. I'll be honest with you. I really have no idea what that means. But when I read it, boy, I sure want to be a part of it. Jesus is the fullness, but he came to earth, he descended, and on the cross, he emptied himself. Jesus poured out his life. He poured out his love. He poured out his very self. Jesus emptied himself and made himself the ultimate gift by giving his life for us on the cross. Because on the cross, the fullness became empty. Jesus endured all of God's judgment on all of our self-fulfilling projects, our self-belonging projects, and He won the pardon for us. He set us free from captivity. So now we can say, our King has won the victory for us, and now the fullness of God is with us. Do you realize what that does for you? This frees you from the captivity of seeking to use your gifts in this world as a way of fulfilling yourself, which only makes you emptier and emptier. Friends, every other religion, every other approach to life basically says if you try really hard, if you live a really good life, if you do all kinds of wonderful things, then you will find fulfillment for yourself. But the more we begin from a place of emptiness, 
The, the more we try to use our gifts in this world as an attempt to fill the hole in our lives, the emptier we actually get. But the gospel begins by giving you the fullness of Jesus because on the cross, the fullness became empty. He took our emptiness in order to give you his fullness. What a gift. So that when you move out into the world and you start trying to use your gifts in this world, now instead of using your gifts and, and your work in this world as a way of fulfilling yourself, which just makes you emptier and emptier, now you can begin to use your gifts in this world as a way of building up the body of Christ and making Jesus more beautiful to others. So if you're here this morning and you're exploring faith, I, I would encourage you, have you considered this gift? Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. Have, will you let him in so that he can fill you? And if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, my question to you is pretty simple. Are you in the game? Are you, are you on the field playing as a part of the team? And if not, do you want to get in the game? <laughs> there are lots of ways to do that. Even at a church like this, which is young and small, read our weekly announcements find out, really, if you want to find out how to use your spiritual gifts, one of the simplest ways is this. Try different things and see which one of them God uses to build up the body of Christ. It'll be pretty easy to see which ones God is blessing. The point is, get in the game. Friends, for all of us, consider the fullness of who Jesus is. Consider the fullness of what Jesus did for us on the cross. The more you see Jesus becoming empty in order to give you his fullness, the more full you become. And the fuller you become, the freer you become. And the freer you become, the more you become able to use your gifts and work in this world as a way of building up the body and making Jesus beautiful to people. Let's pray. Abba, we thank you for being our fullness. Lord, we don't know what that means. It's impossible to even conceive of what it means to say that you are the fullness, but we long for that because we long for fullness. And so we pray this morning, Lord God, Abba, Father, that you would help us to see Jesus more and more emptying himself on the cross in order to fill us with his fullness. And we pray this morning that the more we would see Jesus emptied in order to fill us, that we would be filled to the fullness of the measure of Jesus Christ. That not just as individuals, but as a whole church, Lord, we would grow up, that we would not be babies and immature, that we would grow up and make Jesus beautiful to others through all of our work and our service in this world. Father, help us as your church, we pray, to grow up and help us as your church to serve you in this world, not in order to get full, but because we've already been filled with Jesus. For we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.